0: Dripping down science. The Naked Scientists.
1: Hello. It's Sunday the 29th of January 2012. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith. And also with me this week is Dave Ansell. Hello, Dave. Hello. And Kat Arnie. Hello, Kat. Hello. Now, this week we're answering your science questions for you, including, is air that smells infectious? We'll find out. Why is it hard to make a steamy window that you've written on with a finger fog up again in future? And how do Eskimos manage without their five a day of fruit and veg?
2: Plus, we'll also hear how magic mushrooms affect your brain and about a magnetic soap that can be controlled to clean the parts that other detergents cannot reach.
3: And I'll be showing you a neat trick to reveal how ropes take the strain. To try this out, you'll need
1: two lengths of cotton and two small bottles of water. All will be revealed shortly. So if you want to have a go at that... We'll be telling you what to do. Meanwhile, if you have any questions or comments for us, here's how you can get in touch. Tweet at Naked Scientists. You can also write on our Facebook page. That's at Facebook.com/slash The Naked Scientists. Or you can drop us an email. It's Chris at The The Naked
0: Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk.
1: And straight into the thick of it, Kat, how did the Inuit cope without fresh vegetables and vitamin C, asks Malcolm Kirk. He says, during a recent program I heard uh, on your podcast you were giving examples of how poor diets had affected sailors during voyages of discovery that kept them at sea for extended periods but without any recourse to fresh vegetables. Scurvy being the most common of these diseases encountered um and scurvy of course can be mitigated by fresh fruit which contains vitamin C so what do the eskimos do
2: well this is a great question because obviously there isn't really a lot of fresh fruit up in the arctic and in fact there is a lot of evidence to suggest that the actual traditional inuit diet does have vitamin C in it it's it's not you know as much as you would get with a, a diet that's very rich in fruit and vegetables but clearly it's enough to keep them healthy because the inuit are healthy, they're not affected by scurvy. One of the theories is that it's actually raw meat and fish that's the main component of their diet, which does have a significant amount of vitamin C in. The problem with the sailors is they were obviously trying to cook their meat and trying to preserve it in various ways that destroyed the vitamin C in the meat. But the Inuit living on fresh raw meat and fresh raw fish would actually manage to get enough vitamin C. And particularly there's a, a lovely traditional Inuit staple called muktuk, which is the skin of the beluga whale, which uh, has a lot of vitamin C in it. Um, Also the organs of sea mammals and apparently, allegedly, the stomach contents of caribou, though I'm not sure they would actually eat that. And maybe they just fed it to the dogs to keep their vitamin C up. So there has been quite a lot of research looking at traditional Inuit populations and their diet and finding that, yep, there is enough vitamin C when you analyse their traditional food sources. Um, The problem comes when people are moving away from their traditional food sources and not getting enough fresh fruit and vegetables in in return though there is some evidence actually i found a lovely paper from 1975 which does show that there is some evidence of vitamin c uh, deficiency in the inuit population so that may be some effects of their diet but overall because there wasn't widespread scurvy we have to assume that they were getting enough vitamin c from from their traditional diet
1: indeed speaks volumes okay thank you tom is with us now hello tom hello so tell us what we can do for you.
4: I was wondering about the air we breathe. I was listening to a Johnny Cash song when he was having trouble with a woman, and he told her he was going to go where the air ain't been breathed before. And I was kind of wondering if that's really possible.
1: It sounds slightly ominous. So what do you think, Dave? Um Is it possible to go where the air hasn't been breathed before or has it all been consumed more than once on Earth in the past? It rather depends
3: what you mean by not being breathed before. If you're only interested in the molecules not having been breathed before and you're interested in the oxygen and nothing else, then any oxygen uh, molecule you're breathing in hasn't been breathed before or it can't have been breathed more than a few times before, can't have gone through another creature because otherwise it wouldn't be oxygen anymore, it'd be carbon dioxide so it must be turned back into um, oxygen in a tree. But then again, if you're thinking about the actual atoms and whether any of the atoms have ever been breathed
1: before, that's a whole different kettle of fish. Because they're being recycled around the Earth all the time, aren't they? In the sense that a plant makes some oxygen, you breathe it in and mix it with some sugar to make it into carbon dioxide and that comes back out and a plant breathes that back in and recycles all those atoms again and again. That's totally right. I was
3: just doing some calculations. That is happening all the time, but it does take about 2,000 years for all of the plants in the world to kind of work its way through all the oxygen in the atmosphere. So some of that oxygen you're breathing in won't have been breathed before and, and um, considering the Earth is about 3.8 billion years old you'd have thought that pretty much all of it would have gone through plants and creatures in the, in the past but then again I wouldn't say that all of the atoms all the molecules that you breathe in have um, because there are six with 23 zeros um, <laughs> maybe probably three with 23 zeros um, molecules of gas in every lungful of air and some of those are prob- might well have just been sitting there since the beginning of the earth and also there's also some atoms being coming out of volcanoes and just degassing out of the centre of the earth and some of them we kept raining in from space so a few atoms won't have been but I think most of the air will have been breathed before wherever you are.
1: When you say earth is 3.9 billion years old you mean life on earth is 3.9 billion years old because the earth itself is a little bit older than that isn't it? Yeah no definitely so creatures have only been breathing stuff for 3.9 million years. years. (laughs) We also heard from Patrick Cousins, this is by email chris at com. Patrick says, why don't people get muscle cancer? It seems to be the only tissue immune. Is that true?
2: It's not true. Um, There's some quite common myths about certain types of tissue in the body that don't get cancer. People say, oh, you don't get cancer of the heart. You can. It's just incredibly rare. Any of the tissues in our body can pretty much become cancer because that's just what happens when cells grow out of control. Um, There are well-known cancers of the muscles. There are benign muscle tumours of the smooth muscle. That's the kind of stuff around our intestines and uh, the uterus, they're called leiomyomas. You also get benign tumors of uh, of muscle, skeletal muscle. Those are rhabdomyomas, and you can also get malignant, aggressive muscle tumors. So you get leiomyosarcomas, and that's the smooth muscle cancers, and rhabdomyosarcomas, which you um, particularly affect uh, children. And those are all cancers of the muscle. So although these are very rare, they still do happen.
1: Thanks very much. Now, you know we love to get experimental here on the show. Every time we do one of these phone-in shows, we also get Dave to come up with something that we can do in the studio and that you can do at home. He has obliged and has rigged up a wonderful contraption. Dave is standing behind two suspended drink bottles. Dave, tell us more. What's going on?
3: So what I've got here is I've got a frame with a horizontal bar at the top of it. And hanging from that, I've got a drinks bottle. This is a small bottle. It's about 250 grams of bottle there. And it's hanging on a piece of cotton. And I've got a second piece of cotton tied to the um, neck of the bottle and hanging down.
1: And just to start off with, all I'm going to do is I'm going to pull on that bottom cotton. So we have a, a horizontal bar, piece of cotton coming down small drink bottle with the cotton round the neck like a hangman's noose round the neck of the bottle and then a continuation of the cotton from the neck of the bottle down below the bottle and Dave's got that piece of cotton in his hand So I'm going to pull on this lower piece of cotton and where do you reckon it's going to break Chris? Well logically I would say above the bottle because the, the bit of cotton at the top which is identical to the bit at the bottom is going to be being pulled down by your hand and by the force on that, from that bottle so I would argue the bit at the top so the
3: tension in that top piece of cotton should always be bigger than the bottom one, so should it always break there? First, we can give it a test.
1: OK. Uh, you can hear a, a the bottle A phrase that <laughs> begins something and ends in Sherlock springs to mind. We kind of expected that.
3: Indeed. But now for the second bottle, it's a bit of a challenge for you. I want you to work out a way, just by pulling on the lower piece of cotton, you can get um, the cotton to break below the bottle rather than above it. Say that again. So just by pulling on the lower piece of cotton, just like I did before, you've got to try and make the cotton break below the bottle rather than above it.
1: Okay. so how do you think you can do that? We want you to have a go at home. So rig up your bottle, piece of cotton, round the neck of the bottle, continue the cotton below the bottle, and by pulling on the cotton, the two pieces have to be identical. It's not a trick and there's no other tools involved, is there? Just pull on the cotton. How do you do it to get the cotton below the bottle to break, not the one at the top? dave thank you very much now we had this question from ethel lou who said hi there chris i'd like to know are there germs in bad smelling air bad smells from toilets or bad smells from rubbish dumps etc well i was thinking about this and i think there are probably two aspects to this on the one hand you could say no on the other hand you could say yes now let me explain why i'm sort of hedging my bets here First of all, what is a smell? Well, a smell is a molecule of some kind which is in the air and it's gone into your nose and it's gone to the top of your nose where you have something called an olfactory epithelium. And there, there are nerve cells that have chemical docking stations called receptors on them and they lock onto that molecule and they tell the nervous system, I've recognised this molecule, therefore signal to the brain, this smell is present. Now, molecules in their own right are not going to harm you unless they're a toxic molecule, like hydrogen sulphide, for example. That smells of rotten eggs and it's also a bit toxic. But a molecule on its own is not going to infect you with something. But it could, on the other hand, have come from a source of infection because if there's a corpse or something rotting nearby and it's pumping out these molecules... It means that probably if you can smell them, the source of that smell, which is going to be bacteria, is going to be quite nearby. So you should therefore possibly watch out. Then at the same time, and this is where my yes, it could be a threat answer comes in, it may be possible also for your nose to detect the physical presence of microorganisms directly. Now let me explain that and use an example that probably everyone is acquainted with. The last time it rained all of a sudden, and you went out of your house and you sniffed the air, you must have noticed that wonderful aroma. It's a sort of clean, fresh, earthy aroma in the air. And this is because when the raindrops come down, they hit the soil and they liberate from the soil lots of little spores of an organism that lives in the soil or a family bacteria called Actinomycetes, And these spores have on their surface molecules which will dock with these receptors in your nose and trigger you to smell that smell. So what you're smelling, which you think is beautiful, fresh, post-rain air, is actually loads of bacterial spores. So therefore, if you can smell these bacteria and the parts of these bacteria, you could argue then that it's possible that if you can smell a smell, there could be something potentially infectious in that air and it could potentially hit you and infect you. So I reckon the answer is... Most of the time, a dodgy smell isn't going to be a risk, but it could signal that there's a risk nearby, and so you could walk into a risk if you weren't careful. What do you reckon, Dave?
3: So are there any pathogenic, sort of dangerous bacteria which have this
1: spore kind of effect yeah, there's loads of them. And the other thing is that norovirus and we'll come on to this in just a second, norovirus, which is a very tiny particle, thirty nanometers across, is norovirus particle, one thirty thousandth of a millimeter, tiny particle, and it causes diarrhea and vomiting and winter vomiting disease. And anyone who's infected with noro, every milliliter of what comes out of their body at either end, contains about 100 million of these virus particles they are smaller than the particles of smoke that come off a cigarette and so the thing is the chances are if you smell the smell of what's been the product of someone having a norovirus episode let's say the chances are some of the particles from that are drifting around in the air and they're certainly on surfaces in the environment so if you breathe them in, the infectious dose is one or two particles, so you're probably going to get it. Now, sort of allied to this, um, John Miranda got in touch and he complimented us um, on our Christmas show on our excellent coverage of um, the fartogenic effects of Brussels sprouts at Christmas time. And he said, if all of the bottoms in a hospital had effective fart gas filters, and that's both patients and staff, would that reduce... Uh, hospital-acquired infections because I know airborne bacteria spread um, is feasible. Well actually this is a question that we answered a few years ago and Ben Vousler went to see Simon Park in Surrey who actually did the experiment for us and we've got the bit of audio from four years ago in 2008 where they actually did the experiment to see how efficiently farts can spread potential pathogens.
5: We know that coughs and sneezes can spread diseases and that's how many respiratory infections actually get transferred. But you were thinking there might be another way that bacteria could be transmitted.
6: Yes, um, I have two sons, Joe and Josh, and they've developed a sort of obsession with this homemade biological prank, farting. And I thought, why do we find this so offensive and why is it dangerous and can I demonstrate this to my children to stop them doing it? So I thought of some experiments where I could actually prove whether or not farts could transmit bacteria. So what I've done is is taken some um, Maconky agar plates that are very good at culturing um, faecal bacteria and done some very crude experiments where we've exposed the plates to people farting In terms of a a, a naked fart with no pants and no jeans on, and also people farting with underpants and jeans on.
5: (laughs) So you've set this up by uh, passing wind, shall we say, on uh, what's called a McConkie's Agar plate. Mm -hmm. One of them clearly has some colonies on, and the other one looks completely clean. So, Simon, which one's which?
6: The plate that's totally clean is, is the one that was exposed with pants and jeans on. So it's obviously the pants and jeans have been very effective at filtering out any faecal bacteria. But the plate that was exposed to the naked emission has a splattering of red colonies on it. And they're very indicative of um, E. coli that's a very common faecal bacteria that's a good indicator of faecal contamination there's such huge numbers of bacteria um, in a stool that it's inevitable that we will transmit bacteria after flatulence.
1: So the bottom line is, if you excuse that pun, uh, if you cover the area then the infectious transmission risk is probably extremely low. If you go around flatulating on people in hospital without the rear end covered there is a likelihood you may expel some organisms that could make people unwell. Chris, Dave and Kat answering all your science questions and also taking a look at some of this week's top-breaking science news stories. Speaking of which, Kat, Alzheimer's disease and new ways to understand it in the dish.
2: Yes, moving from the ridiculous to the sublime, uh, from the science of farting to the science of Alzheimer's disease. And one of the biggest problems with studying brain diseases such as Alzheimer's is the difficulty of getting samples of living brain cells from patients and also finding good model systems that you can study easily in the lab. Now, there are some mouse models of Alzheimer's that have been very useful, but these don't actually replicate all the symptoms and changes that you see in the human disease. And most studies of Alzheimer's have been done using human tissue, uh, with human tissue, Tissue have been done using samples from people with quite rare inherited forms of Alzheimer's. But in fact, most of the cases that we see are just randomly occurring, these sporadic forms of the disease. Now, there's been some work that's been done using nerve cells from human fetuses, but obviously, there's quite a lot of ethical and technical issues with using this kind of tissue. But now, researchers led by Mason Israel and Lawrence Goldstein from the Howard Hughes Medical Institute in California have published a paper in the journal Nature, revealing a way to generate stem cells from Alzheimer's patients, which can then be grown indefinitely in the lab. How did they do that? Well, they started by taking just little samples of skin from patients. Uh, They used two patients with an inherited form of Alzheimer's disease, two patients with this randomly occurring sporadic Alzheimer's, and two people without the disease, and then they separated out special cells called fibroblasts from each skin sample and you can grow these for a certain time in the lab. Now next they used a relatively new and very exciting technique using a special virus called a retrovirus to deliver a suite of genes into these fibroblasts which effectively reprogrammed them and transformed them into immortal stem cells and these cells are known as pluripotent stem cells because they can be converted into several different types of cells. So next, they grew these pluripotent stem cells under certain conditions that cause them to grow into nerve cells or neurons, and these are the kind of cells that are affected in Alzheimer's. And studying the cells in depth showed that the neurons grown from samples taken from patients with this hereditary form of Alzheimer's had very high levels of amyloid. This is the protein that makes the plaques that are the main characteristics of the disease. And they also found higher levels of a protein called phospho tau, which makes knotty tangles in the brain of patients. So these are replicating what looks like uh, the conditions of the disease. Now, intriguingly, they also found higher levels of amyloid and phospho-tau in neurons made from cells from one of the patients with sporadic Alzheimer's, so this randomly occurring disease, even though the patient's original fibroblast cells didn't show increased levels of these molecules. Now, this tells us that there's some kind of gene variations or underlying genetic faults within the patient's whole genome that are causing this disease, though at the moment the identity of these genes is unknown. So hopefully using this kind of technique to study cells from many more patients with sporadic Alzheimer's could actually provide really important clues as to why some people develop the disease.
1: Cat, thank you very much. Brilliant news. To catch up with your comments, Leo Mandelbro in Second Life says, nice people always part with, fart with their pants on. We've also heard from Kurt Larson who says, hi Chris, I was listening to the podcast of your show from the 8th of January and I'd just like to say how pleased and surprised I was to find out that NASA was going to do the experiment to answer my question of whether a siphon would work in space. It may not have been the safest of listening experiences due to the fact that other motorists wouldn't have enjoyed my whooping, cheering and erratic swerving while driving to work. Thank you again next time you're in South Australia. Let me know. I'll drive you around the wineries. Thank you very much, Kurt. Now, talking of space and NASA and so on, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin brought back the first samples of moon rock in 1969, scientists were surprised to see telltale signs in the material that the moon had once had a magnetic field, a bit like the one that we have on Earth today. They thought that this magnetic field had been created by geological processes that were occurring while the moon was still hot from its birth, but that these had stopped once it had cooled down. Now, though, another look at one of those 1969 samples has revealed something very unexpected. Erin Shea from MIT made the discovery. She's with us. Erin, hello. Hello. So what is it you found?
4: What I found was that 3.7 billion years ago, the moon had a very strong, stable and long-lived magnetic field, uh, like you said, similar to what the Earth has today.
1: If we sort of wind back through the Moon's history, we think it's about the same age as the Earth, give or take, and it was formed by some catastrophic collision between Earth and an Earth-sized planet that then ejected all this material into space. So is the Moon, therefore, effectively a mini-Earth in orbit around the Earth?
4: (laughs) That's a very, very good question. In a lot of senses, the Moon and the Earth have a lot in common they both have these metallic cores on the Earth. Thankfully, it's still going strong and producing magnetic field. And on the moon, it seems like it died out several billion years ago.
1: But grossly, the mechanism that produces the magnetic field, we think because the the moon is effectively spawned from the Earth, we think would probably be similar.
4: Initially, we thought that if the moon ever did have a magnetic field um, caused by a dynamo, which is what generates the magnetic field on the Earth, that dynamo would have the same power source on the moon as it did on the earth. Um, What our study has just shown though, is that the dynamo on the moon lasted far longer than we would have expected it to if it had the same power source on the earth. The dynamo is driven by cooling as the metal cools down. It convects the metallic core and that generates um, a magnetic field um, through some complicated physics. Um, At least to me, it's complicated on the moon though. We would have expected the moon to cool off long ago um, at 4.2 billion years ago approximately. So seeing evidence for a magnetic field 3.7 billion years ago really kind of puts the alarm bells out that something other than cooling must have generated the moon's dynamo.
1: There's no way that you could have miscalculated, or I don't mean you personally, but the scientific community (laughs) could have miscalculated the rate of cooling for the moon and that in fact it is the same process as we have on Earth. It just took longer for the moon to cool down and therefore it kept its dynamo for longer.
4: Well, as a scientist, you can never say never, but it's rather unlikely that we misjudged this calculation. Um, We know how much heat-producing radioactive elements the moon has. We know how big the moon is, and so from there we can actually do this calculation. So probably not, but I would never cross that completely off the list.
1: So how did you actually do the study? You got your hands on a piece of material that Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong brought back with them from 1969. I bet they don't come along every day.
4: No, I. Uh, it was like a dream. You apply to NASA and you tell them what you're going to do with the sample and then they allocate you um, a given amount. We got one gram of lunar sample 10020. And what we did is we cut this into small pieces and measured the magnetic field on each of those pieces. And we knew their orientation relative to each other, um, which is kind of important for the measurements that we were doing.
1: So you can tell that there's a magnetic field written into that rock. How did it get there then?
4: There's lots of ways that rocks can acquire magnetic fields. On the Earth, when a lava erupts, it can acquire a magnetic field from the Earth's magnetic field because you know that's the reason that our compasses work and then that rock could get hit by lightning, and then it would get another magnetic field. On the moon, there's a whole different set of sources. So we have possibilities that lava was erupted onto the surface of the moon, and it cooled down in the presence of a magnetic field um, generated by a dynamo, and that would produce one set of characteristics. Um, Another set of characteristics would be produced if there was a big impact and a magnetic field was produced by that impact. When we pick that sample up, It spent about three days uh, riding back to the Earth on a spacecraft with DC current, which also generates a magnetic field. And then it spent 40 years sitting on the surface of the Earth in the presence of the Earth's magnetic field. So there are all these sources and then lots and lots of different things in addition to that uh, that could have given this rock the magnetic field. And what we've shown is that this sample actually erupted as a magma it was hot and then as it cooled down it locked in a magnetization that it seems was from a a lunar dynamo which is awesome
1: so it's a time capsule effectively recording the existence of this magnetic field a long while after we would have expected it to have gone away can you speculate for us as to how that came along how did it come about what could have caused this
4: what could have caused this dynamo on the moon? Um, obviously, we just talked about cooling, and you're right—we um, don't know for sure, but we're pretty sure that the moon was would have been cold by 3.7 billion years ago. Um, there were two papers written and published in Nature in December uh, that talked about different ways that you could have generated a lunar core dynamo. Uh, one of which was that the Earth kind of mechanically mixed the lunar core, the gravity of the Earth kind of forced that around, which is really neat to think about because or 3.7 billion years ago, the Moon was actually much closer to the Earth. So that would have had a much bigger effect. The other paper was about large impacts because when you look at the Moon today, you can tell that it's experienced a pretty rough history. Um, there's lots of craters on the surface. And what these people have hypothesized is that maybe large impacts serve to stir that lunar core and generate a dynamo
1: and finally does it have any implications for the earth because it's one thing to worry about the moon where no one lives we live and die by our magnetic field what about um, life on earth does it tell us anything about the magnetic field here
4: that's a that's a really great question and what it might tell us is what does the magnetic field look like when it dies off that's something it could tell us And then also, what started this on the Earth? You know, what was the Earth's early history like? Because if the moon is full of craters, then the Earth must have been bombarded with craters too. And so what effect would that have had on the Earth's magnetic field in its early history?
1: Brilliant. Erin Shea is from MIT, and she published that work this week in the journal Science. Kat, I've got a question here from Rashi Rastagi, who has got in touch and says... How do mutations occur in human beings?
2: That is a great question and I could talk for hours about this but I'll try and keep it brief. The main cause of mutations, and this is damage to the DNA in your cells, and DNA is obviously the instructions in your cells that tells them what to do. So damage to to DNA in your cells can cause problems. Now, most mutations happen uh, actually because we breathe oxygen. Don't stop breathing. Uh, You're probably going to be okay. We breathe oxygen, and this generates molecules called free radicals within our cells, and these are very damaging to DNA. So most of the mutations that we get are just patched up all the time. We have very good DNA repair processes in our cells that patch them all up. But sometimes, you know, mistakes creep in. Most of the time, these aren't even important because a lot of the cells in your body um, are destroyed after a while. The cells in your gut are constantly turning over in your skin, in your bone marrow. Um, So most of the time, it's not that important. Cells get damaged and they just die and you get rid of them. What happens uh, when it becomes really important is when you get mutations in cells that do hang around uh, and in stem cells particularly that can cause problems. But there are lots of other ways that you can mutate the DNA in your cells. Um, for example, the carcinogens, the cancer-causing chemicals and things like tobacco smoke, some things in our environment, things like benzenes, uh, some air pollution, all sorts of things can damage your DNA. Another big cause is the sun. The ultraviolet light from the sun causes very specific type of DNA mutation. It causes the bases, T's, that are together to kind of fuse together in your in your DNA. So there's an awful lot of things that can cause mutations. Sometimes they don't matter, sometimes they do, uh, some of which we can't really prevent, and a lot of which our body just repairs naturally. But the trouble is when we don't repair them, um, or we keep piling more mutations in, or if we have problems with the repair systems in our cells, then you can get problems like cancer and other diseases.
1: Thank you, Kat. Dr Raj Thacker wants to know, Dave, if you can answer in a very short time. Will he be able to teleport in future? That would be useful for getting to work quick, wouldn't it?
3: It would be wonderful. I think at the moment there are some people doing very incredibly kind of subtle experiments, which means you can both get um, information about a single particle, both its position and its direction, and get that information somewhere else. But they're still on single photons. I think doing a whole person certainly isn't going to happen in your lifetime. Meanwhile, tell us about some news that has happened this week. Well, a material has been developed which can distill drinks without even heating. this is another story about graphene, which is probably the material of the moment. It's made up of carbon atoms bonded to one another in a honeycomb pattern, forming exceedingly strong sheets, just one atom thick. And they have very exciting electrical properties. But it's also incredibly impermeable to other atoms. Members of Andre Geim's group at the University of Manchester were investigating this impermeability of a very related material called graphene oxide. This is graphene which has been reacted with a strong oxidising agent which makes it more soluble and easier to deal with. What they did was they created membranes made up of small flat pieces of this graphene oxide which pile up like bricks forming an interlocking kind of membrane. They tested how gas-proof they were by using the film's lid to a container of various gases. They found that despite being 500 times thinner than a human hair, as far as they could measure, it completely stopped hydrogen-nitrogen-argon from escaping. It even stopped helium, which, being a tiny single atom, escapes from party balloons incredibly quickly, as you've probably noticed, and will even diffuse out through a millimetre of glass. They then tried various liquids and found similar behaviour for ethanol, hexane, acetone, decane and propanol vapour. When they tried normal water, it behaved as if the membrane wasn't there. What? So So helium,
1: which is minute, won't go through, but water does?
3: Yes, it's completely bizarre. Um, What they think's happening is that because graphene oxide is quite soluble, it kind of forms a single layer of water molecules in between each layer of graphene oxide. And these water molecules are moving incredibly easy through this. They kind of work their way through the kind of brick-like structure and escape and it's almost as if the membrane wasn't there. They even made use of this. Now, normally if you take some vodka and put it in a glass and leave it out overnight, the ethanol evaporates before the water does because ethanol's got a low boiling point, so it evaporates so quickly. They put this stuff over the top, and as they left it there, it got more and more concentrated because the, wa- <laughs> <laughs> the water could escape,
1: but the ethanol couldn't. Do you not get a problem, though, because if the water goes out, then the actual volume has dropped, or do you then have to volatilize, evaporate more ethanol into the airspace to take up the space? of the water that's gone so is that a problem then with the pr- distilling
3: this way the pressure would reduce so i mean if you're actually going to do it practically you'd have to have something to balance the pressures but they were actually starting off with an overpressure inside the container by over about a tenth of an atmosphere
1: which is quite impressive for something 500 times thinner than a human hair anyway but apart from making your vodka stronger which is nice but not necessarily something that will change the world what could we do with this Well,
3: separating water from other solvents is an incredibly major part of huge amounts of chemistry. And it's very difficult just separating ethanol from water. You can do it by distillation, but to get all of the water out, it's impossible. You can't get more than 96% by distillation, which takes a huge amount of energy anyway. And so if you could just put this material over the top and leave it to dry out, that's a huge saving energy. And there's a huge number of chemical reactions, which it could make an incredible
1: difference for. Sounds amazing. I quite like the vodka idea as well. Thank you, Dave. Now, this week, scientists have also shown for the first time in humans that cells that are made from human embryonic stem cells can be used safely to partially restore vision. Now, working with two blind registered American patients, Bob Lanza, who's a stem cell pioneer from a company called Advanced Cell Therapeutics in Massachusetts in America, they've announced in The Lancet this week, the medical journal, a trial in which they have taken human embryonic stem cells. They have, by culturing these cells in the correct conditions, persuaded the cells to turn into what are known as retinal pigment epithelial cells. These are cells which form the back lining of the eye, and they have a very important job to do in terms of nourishing and nurturing the photoreceptors, which are the cells that turn the light that comes into our eyes into nerve signals that the brain can decode. And in some diseases you lose this retinal pigment epithelial layer and because the photoreceptors are deprived of that nurturing and nourishing support role that these cells would normally supply, the photoreceptors then subsequently follow suit and people get irreversible blindness. And a good example of this is macular degeneration and there's also a paediatric equivalent and that tends to affect older people. There's also a paediatric equivalent which is called Stargardt's macular dystrophy, both of which, again, are caused by damage to this retinal pigment epithelium. So what Bob Lander and his team did was to take these pig- retinal, p- take these retinal pigment epithelial cells that they made from the stem cells, and they injected fifty thousand of them into the worst eye in these two patient volunteers in America, who effectively were registered blind, and then followed them up. And four months later, both of the patients both reported subjectively and also demonstrated objective improvements in their vision. One patient went from just about being able to see gross hand movements in front of her eyes to being able to count the fingers on the hand of the examiner. Now, this was a literally an early phase safety trial to tell whether these stem cell-derived cells could be used safely because one of the big concerns with stem cell work is that the stem cells could give rise to cells that might cause cancers and things like that these patients did not suffer any damage to their vision they did not suffer any visual decrement their vision got better they did not develop any tumors And most of the time you'd expect such things to occur within a very short time of cells like this being implanted into the body. Now the patients did need to be immunosuppressed to have this done to stop their immune system attacking these foreign cells. But what's not known is how long they would have to remain immunosuppressed or what the long-term outcome for them would be. But we spoke to Bob Lanza uh, earlier this week about the implications of this work
3: the goal of this therapy is not to cure blindness, but rather to slow down or prevent the onset of the disease process altogether. So these safety studies were being carried out in patients who already had advanced stage disease, and who had already lost their photoreceptors, that is, the cones and the rods we see with. So if we can show the cells are safe and well-tolerated, we can then start to treat patients earlier in the course of the disease with more significant results that might potentially be expected.
1: In other words, you go into people who don't yet have sight loss and you remedy the disease process in them so they don't actually go blind at all let's hope so i mean it sounds encouraging doesn't it cat
2: yeah and it's certainly interesting in the light of the news story i talked about earlier where there are these techniques now where you can reprogram things like fibroblasts just skin cells from adults and reprogram them back into a more embryonic like state and then turn them into something else so um Given that these patients had to have immunosuppressive drugs because they were getting non self cells, they were getting cells from another source, perhaps then the future is to try and take your own cells and turn them into these embryonic cells and then turn them into retinal cells to to replace your own. Be interesting to see if that's where this goes.
0: Distilling the best science.
1: The Naked Scientists. 2012 began with gale-force winds, localised flooding and travel disruption across the UK. But not everyone was sorry to see the stormy weather. Robin Hogan, a professor of atmospheric physics at the University of Reading, is working with the Met Office on a project to develop a statistical database of storms. It's called DIMEX, which stands for Dynamical and Microphysical Evolution of Convective Storms. And it involves real-time analysis – and aims to help to improve storm predictions in the future. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson met up with Robin and asked him how you go about tracking a thunderstorm.
0: What we do is we use the Met Office radar network, and that takes images of the rainfall over the whole of the UK every five minutes. And from that we can see with incredible detail what the surface rain rate is, and we can see how we can track one storm from one five-minute period to the next uh, and work out where it's going. And so typically a storm will last for maybe an hour or sometimes two hours. And so we're able to see how that storm evolves and particularly how the surface rain rates get larger as the storm gets bigger. And then as it sort of breaks up later on in its life, it will then decay away. And we can sort of use computer algorithms to follow that storm through its evolution.
7: So it's relatively easy to follow. How easy is it to simulate
0: That's one of the biggest problems of predicting uh, floods in the summer. A model of weather forecasting has to capture lots of different processes to get convective thunderstorms correct. It needs to represent things like hailstones, it needs to uh, capture the updrafts correctly. That's the vertical winds that are carrying the particles up inside the cloud and you often get combinations of supercooled water droplets. So this is droplets that are below zero degrees but they're still liquid and they will freeze at some point and the models have to capture the time at which that occurs And all of these processes are important for working out the surface rain rate, which is what we want to get for flood forecasting in particular.
7: So what is this project aiming to do then?
0: Well, what we want to do is to use the uh, capabilities of the Chilbolton Research Radar, to capture the evolution of uh, thunderstorms in much more detail than we've ever got before and that will then be combined with a modelling component which will be using the Met Office's model which is you know, quite phenomenal resolution actually over the whole of the UK it has a one5 a half kilometre grid box size and by combining the observations and the modelling we're, we're able to then see in which aspects the model isn't doing very well to uh, hopefully improve it.
7: Why does it need improving? You say one and a half kilometres, and that must cover even the smallest of villages.
0: Well, even though it's 1.5 kilometres, models are only as good as the data that go into them, and so it's relying on weather balloons that are only launched every 12 hours, for example. And the other thing is that the processes still have to be very much approximated. So, in particular, at one and a half kilometres, you're still having to represent the fact that as a convective storm, so a thunderstorm, rises through the atmosphere, for example, it will have to represent mixing of air between the cloudy air and the clear sky next to it at just the right rate in order that the right amount of water gets up to the top of the troposphere. And if you don't get that right, then the the cloud will will not go too high or it will go far too high and uh, you will get the wrong amount of rainfall coming out of it.
7: So how do you improve then your measurements, your data? If you're only as good as the data you've put in, how do you get better data?
0: The uh, Chilbolton radar is really where we're coming from. So currently when we uh, see a weather forecast on the TV, we see measurements by a number of radars around the UK that have a one degree beam width, so their resolution at a distance of 60 kilometres is something like one kilometre. Now what the Chilbolton radar can offer is the ability to scan the three dimensional structure, so not just the surface but also up to a height of around 10 kilometres which is typically how high storms get. This radar has a quarter of a degree beam width, so that means that at 50 or 60 kilometres distance it can see clouds with a resolution of 250 metres, so much higher resolution. And uh, the Chilbolton radar, as well as being able to measure the intensity of rainfall, is also able to measure the wind speed, and so it can really see the flows of air that are acting to develop and build the storm.
7: Now, you've been already analysing various storms.
0: That's right. We uh, have had something like eight very good days.
7: In your terms, a good day, then, is a storm.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. The more storms, the better, as far as we're concerned. We are hoping to get a total of 40 days over an 18-month period. We're actually interested in convective uh, clouds in winter and summer, so the Met Office also has a problem with snow showers, in particular coming from uh, the east so we're we're happy to study those when they come along and i'm sure we'll be able to uh, say some interesting things about the performance of the model there so we are hoping that flood forecasts can be made more skillful which is certainly of, of great economic benefit for the uk
1: Professor Robin Hogan from the University of Reading. and You can hear that report from Sue Nelson alongside more news from the natural world in the Planet Earth podcast. You can find that at nakedscientists.com slash planet earth. Kathleen's online. Hello, Kathleen. Hi. Tell us what we can do for you. Well, I would like to know if there are any naturally occurring beneficial viruses Ooh, good one. I reckon the answer is yes. Um, First and foremost, I think if you think about viruses that prey on bacteria, because just like us, bacteria can catch a cold too, bacteriophages will attack bacteria and kill them. And this has actually been used as a form of antibiotic therapy. And it was pioneered in Russia, but it has actually been used all over the world. What scientists do is find these viruses that discreetly and specifically prey on certain strains of bacteria and specifically the bacteria that are causing an infection in a patient. They can then grow up those particular bacteriophages. They put them into the patient. They are unable to infect a person's cells because they don't lack the or they lack the right uh, docking system to latch on to one of our cells. They go into the bacteria, grow in the bacteria. Each infected bacteria makes hundreds of new bacteriophages, which then kill hundreds more bacteria until it runs out of bacteria to kill. And then the whole thing just disappears. So I'd say those are pretty beneficial viruses. There are also some viruses which infect us, which actually we think may, despite the fact we're getting infected by them, have a beneficial effect on our health. There was a paper published in Nature in 2007, and it's by a guy called Skip Virgin in the States. And they demonstrated that if they got mice and infect them with the rodent equivalent of glandular fever, which is a herpes virus, or cytomegalovirus, another herpes virus and then after the animals had cleared the infection they challenged them with listeria or with bubonic plague the mice were all fine they all survived if they challenged mice that hadn't had those herpes infections first then they all died And their theory is that because these viruses get into the body and they then establish a lifelong infection, what's called a latent infection, they in some way reprogram the immune system. And it's almost like the immune system is using the virus because it's got a very big genetic code in the virus, almost like a USB pen drive for priming the immune system in a way that it's forgotten how to do itself. So I would argue that's probably one kind of beneficial virus too. But a very nice question. Chris, Dave and Kat answering your science questions. We also have a kitchen science experiment running uh, in which Dave has asked you to suspend a drink bottle by a thin piece of cotton wrapped around its neck and then have another piece of cotton from the drink bottle neck going down under the bottle and by pulling the string... In some special way, or the cotton in some special way, try and make the string break below the bottle, not above. Android Neox has been very clever on second iPhone and says, pull the string upwards to lift the whole thing up and make it break above the bottle. Very good. I like that. That's pretty clever. That like is that very one. clever. Not what I was thinking of. <laughs> Here's one you can think of, though, Dave. Stephen King says uh, by email, chris at com. This question is from my seven-year-old son, Colin. When I breathe hot breath on a cold car window, it steams up. When I draw on the window in the foggy part or I wipe off the fog, I can't breathe on it again to make it foggy. Why is this?
3: OK, um, we had to have a bit of an experiment. I've been out on the windows drawing all over them with my fingers.
1: <laughs> so that was you? <laughs>
3: that, I couldn't possibly come Chris. Chris. Um, and I think what's going on is that your fingers are greasy and when you draw on the window, you can actually see the grease on the window if it's clean to start with. And grease is hydrophobic, which means it doesn't like water, whereas glass is actually quite hydrophilic, which means it does like water. When you breathe on the glass, what's happening is water vapour in your um, breath is condensing to form droplets of water. Now, they'll find it a lot easier to do That's that. That's the foggy bit. Which is a f- foggy bit, which is, you see, which kind of scatters the light and it looks foggy. Now, it's a lot easier for a droplet to start on something hydrophilic than something hydrophobic. So um, on the glass, you'll get lots and lots of droplets forming. You'll get billions and billions and billions of tiny little droplets forming. Whereas on the grease, because it's so much harder to form them, you'll just get a few big ones and th- then those will grow much more until they'll end up being much bigger. So you've got lots and lots of tiny droplets or a few big ones and it's much easier to see through a few big ones so it looks transparent on the bit which is greasy and not on the bit which isn't. And that's why it looks like you can't refog it. There is some water there but just... It's all in big blobs, not little blobs. Yeah,
1: and they quite, quite soon they kind of merge together and it just turns into a sheet which is entirely transparent. We're now with a look at what else is making science headlines this week, including the discovery of a gene that makes racehorses turn from racehorses into race winners. Here is Meera with our Naked Scientist Newsflash.
8: How hallucinogenic drugs such as magic mushrooms affect the brain has been mapped in humans for the first time. Using fMRI scanners, researchers watched how the brains of 30 volunteers responded to doses of psilocybin, the active ingredient of magic mushrooms. The drug suppressed the activity of certain hub regions of the brain that control how information flows between different brain regions. Areas known to control mood were also affected. Robert Carhart-Harris from Imperial College London led the work.
3: The surprising result was that we only saw decreases in brain activities. We didn't actually see any increases anywhere in the brain. So the larger the drops in brain activity, the more intense the psychedelic effects of the drug. And then that they were in regions associated with a sense of self, and
4: also regions that are overactive in depression because people are very self-conscious and self-critical in depression. The implication then is that the drug may be effective, in treating patients with depression.
8: The gene for speed in modern racehorses has been traced back to a single mare that lived 300 years ago. Since then, selective breeding for speed and stamina has led to a very high prevalence of the favourable C variant of a gene called myostatin, which gives thoroughbred racehorses a sprinting boost. Analyzing the DNA of 593 horses from both Eurasian and North American regions, Emmeline Hill from University College London discovered where this speed gene came from in the first place and how it spread.
4: The speed gene proliferated in the population as a result of um, the success of a horse called Northern Dancer. But also the study shows how very quickly economically valuable alleles can can move within a population. It demonstrates the, the, the power that breeders have to shape the diversity or the variation
2: within their own populations and to be able to very quickly, with the knowledge of the genetic types of their horses, shape and develop a population of horses of the type that they want.
8: The world's first magnetic soap has been developed by scientists at the University of Bristol. By combining iron-rich salts with the water-soluble component of soap, Julian Easto's team created soap particles with metallic centres meaning the soap can be controlled with a magnetic field.
4: There were various applications you can imagine. One which is quite obvious is the um, possibility to use magnets and these soaps to recover oil and oil spills, for example. There are smaller-scale applications. You can imagine trying to clean a component of a machine or, a, or an engine, for example. Normal soaps could never get into the nooks and crannies. But it now becomes possible using magnets to guide the soapy solutions into the the parts which other soaps cannot reach.
8: Social networks were crucial to the evolution of cooperation in ancient hunter-gatherer populations. Studying Tanzania's Hadza people, who are one of the last surviving hunter-gatherer populations, Karen Apicella from Harvard Medical School found that ties between individuals were based on the tendency to cooperate. And formed between both kin and unrelated members of the group, leading to the altruism and cooperation also needed in society today.
4: Well, a lot of the properties you see in our networks also hold true in the Hadza. Popular people tend to be friends with other popular people. You see, a person's friends tend to be friends with one another. The further away you go geographically, the less likely you are to be friends with a person, and cooperatives individuals preferentially form ties with other cooperative individuals. So these findings provide crucial insight into the evolution of cooperation and altruism in humans and suggest that social networks have been a fundamental part of human life since ancient times.
8: And the work was published this week in the
2: journal Nature Communications. That was Mira santhalingam our very own social animal. And if you'd like to follow up on those stories or any of the other stories we've covered this week, the stories and references are available at thenakedscientist.com slash news.
1: And this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Kat Arney and with Dave Ansell. It's our science phone-in special, which means we're answering your science questions and also doing some experiments here in the studio. Dave has come up with a real good one this week, which no one has yet solved. Just remind us, quick recap, Dave, what we set up. So what I've got is a bottle with,
3: um, which is hanging from a horizontal bar with a piece of cotton. I've got a second piece of cotton which um, is been tied onto the neck of the bottle as well and is hanging down. And earlier I just pulled on that bottom piece of cotton gently and um, the top piece of cotton broke first because that's got to carry the weight of the bottle as well as my tug. And I asked you to work out a way of breaking the bottom piece of cotton without the top one.
1: Kat, what do you think? What's your speculation? How would you do it?
2: Um, I, oh, I would just get the scissors, to be honest. I don't know. How we do did you do so it? no
1: extra tools?
2: I know, but I, I'm a cheater.
3: Go on, Dave. OK, there's a knack to this, and it's a bit of a trick, but a very useful one. What you want to do is basically pull that piece of cotton incredibly quickly. So what I'm going to do is... So I'm this gonna... is
1: the bottom piece of cotton, and he's wrapped it around his fingers. And I'm going to give it a very, very rapid yank. So three,
3: two, one...
1: Well, I'm deafened by silence. The cotton didn't, it it broke in, it broke off actually in the middle. It didn't actually break at all. You better have another go. It did
3: break. It broke. It just was so effective you didn't notice. Three, two,
1: one. Oh, well, I saw what you mean. The (laughs) cotton, the lower piece of cotton is breaking. So the bottle, the bottle actually hanging on the top is not coming down at all. Yeah, and I see why, I see why that's amazing. What yeah,
3: that's <laughs> It's so it amazing you didn't even all. notice
1: it. Wow. So why does this work?
3: OK, so the, in order to break that top piece of cotton, what you've actually got to do is pull that bottle down a fair distance, a reasonable distance, because that piece of cotton is actually quite stretchy. So to get it to break, you've got to maybe move it a millimetre or so. And but, so you've got to move that bottle down. Now, if you pull incredibly quickly that bottle will only get a a force for a very short period of time um, before the bottom um, piece of cotton breaks. And if that bottom piece of cotton breaks so quickly that the bottle has hardly moved then the top piece of cotton can't get much more force in it so it can't break and effectively it gets the force kind of averaged out over a while and so the bottom cotton
1: piece of cotton breaks long before the top one has any chance of even getting slightly stressed. So it's all down to inertia in that bottle because there's a heavy mass there so if I had a very light bottle, if the bottle were empty so it doesn't have the mass of the liquid inside would it then just probably break above again?
3: Yeah, if there was no mass at all there, then then it would just break... If there was no mass, then it would just break somewhere in the piece of cotton. It doesn't really matter because the top one isn't stressed at all. Um, But, yeah, it's all to do with that inertia, so that bottle doesn't move, so when you pull very quickly. And that bottom piece of cotton is getting this very, very rapid, very, very sharp force, which is actually very, very destructive, whereas the top one's getting an average force, which isn't nearly as destructive.
1: So is that what they do when they tow boats and things? Because... When you look at, uh, say, an oil rig being towed by a, a set of tugs or something, the tow lines are always really long and they're bowed down into the water. And I've always wondered why, because I thought if it were towing, it, wouldn't it be straight? But actually, I understand they, they do actually weigh down the line in the middle as well.
3: Yeah, they put a great big heavy weight in the middle of the line, which means that for the, um, piece of, for, the for it to pull absolutely tight, it's actually got to lift that weight, which is incredibly difficult. And that kind of essentially puts a spring into it. So instead of having these very, very sharp, very, very violent, very dangerous loads, shock loads, you kind of average it out. And the toes tend to only part when they actually get absolutely straight, and then they will snap quite easily. But if you can average it out, then it's a lot easier.
1: Is the same trick used in buildings and things like that? Um, You certainly
3: want to avoid shock loading. It's actually used when you are building. So if you take a nail and a hammer and you hit the hammer, uh, so hit the nail with the hammer, what you're producing is a very, very sharp, very, very quick load, which will destroy the p- the piece of material immediately at the end of the nail. So the nail will go in very easily. Um, if you try to push the nail in with a very, very slow force, um, it would probably cause a whole wall to collapse because the, that force will get um, averaged out over a large area.
1: Brilliant. Dave has written this up. You can find it on our website at nakedscientist.com slash kitchen science. Beautiful pictures and a lovely explanation too if you want to have a go at that. We're now with an electrifying question of the week to finish off with. Here is Hannah Critchlow.
0: The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. This week, Jacob
7: is getting hot under the collar with this energy-related conundrum.
0: This is Jacob Hansen calling from South Korea. We are often told that we can make great savings by turning off all electrical devices that we keep on standby, but it seems to me that the electricity consumed by such devices will eventually end up as heat. If my home is heated completely by electricity, do I get any real savings by turning off all my standby devices?
7: Is there any point in switching off your lights, TVs and phone chargers during the winter? We spoke to Cambridge University's David Mackay, Chief Scientific Advisor for Energy and Climate Change, and he referred us to his book, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air, in which he writes...
5: This myth is true for a few people, but only during the winter, but it's false for most If your house is being heated by electricity through ordinary bar fires or blower heaters, then yes, it's much the same as heating the house with any electricity-wasting appliances. But if you are in this situation, you should change the way you heat your house. Electricity is a high-grade energy, and heat is low-grade energy. It's a waste to turn electricity into heat. To be precise, if you make only one unit of heat from a unit of electricity... Then that's a waste. Heaters called air source heat pumps or ground source heat pumps can do much better, delivering three or four units of heat for every unit of electricity consumed. They work like a back to front refrigerator, pumping heat into your house from the outside air. For the rest of us whose homes are heated by fossil fuels or by biofuels, it's a good idea to avoid using electrical gadgets as a heat source for your home at least for as long as our increases in electricity demand are served by fossil fuels. It's better to burn the fossil fuel at home. The point is, if you use electricity from an ordinary fossil power station, more than half of that energy from the fossil fuel goes sadly up the cooling tower. Of the energy that gets turned into electricity, about 8% is lost in the transmission system. If, however, you burn that fossil fuel in your home, then more of the energy goes directly into making hot air for you.
7: You all generated a lot of hot air debating this issue online. Turnip Sock explains all the power consumed ultimately ends up as heat. You would be just as well with 10 100-watt bulbs rather than a 1-kilowatt electric fire. Except you probably wouldn't get much sleep. And with that energy enigma resolved... This just in from the youthful-sounding Kevin Hoover in California.
3: Hello, Naked Scientists. I'm 57 years old. I was looking at a baby picture of myself, and I wondered how much of that me is still left in the current me. Do I have any original parts? In other words, how much of the baby that was born in 1954 is still a part of me, a part, of course, from my cherubic looks? As a teenager, I later assumed a form factor similar to my present one, if sleeker, have I hung on to any of the 18-year-old that I once was? How many me's have I cycled through in my lifetime? Thanks, Naked scientists.
7: Send your thoughts on this quandary to chris at scientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientist, write on our Facebook page, or join in the debates on our forum, which is at nakedscientist.com slash forum.
1: Hannah Critchlow. That's it for this week. Thank you for joining us and thank you for your questions. We're back next week discussing the issue of obesity and whether weight loss foods and diet foods actually make you fatter. Join us next week
0: if you can. The Naked Scientists Podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and UK Fast. For more cutting edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com.
5: Thinking about your next career move in research and development?